0: Welcome back to Wrong Sports, and if you are new to the channel, this will be my third part in a series that I have done on how the year was won on various college football years during the decade of the 1920s. I did a video on the 1924 season, which had a notable champion to pick, and then I did the 1926 season, which was a little harder, but you could still pick one national champion. This next year that I'll be doing in the 1920s is is one of the toughest years to pick a national champion. It's been one of the toughest episodes for me to do. That's why it's taken me a couple of weeks after my 1924 and 1926 video to get this one done. You can make a case for about six teams to win the national championship. And when I did my research on this year, I went into all the different selectors that had chosen a national champion, whether that means retroactively or did it during the 1927 season. They are split between four Teams. That's how tough it is to pick a national champion, and that is what I will be going over in this next video. But before I get to that, make sure, as always, you subscribe to the channel below. And thank you so much for getting me over 1,000 subscribers. Make sure you keep sharing this channel with more college football fans, so we can get this up to 10,000 subscribers. Also, ring the bell and get updates on brand new videos that I will be dropping all throughout the rest of this year. And of course, like this video. Share this video with other college football fans. And one more thing, in the description below, you can check out my social media, my Patreon, and my podcast. So, before we start the 1927 season, let me show you the top 10 from the Dickinson poll at the end of the 1926 season. But the Dickinson poll would name Stanford the national champion, finishing closely ahead of Navy. Then, tied for third was Michigan and Notre Dame. Lafayette was number five. And unbeaten Alabama, who hadn't lost since 1924, was ranked number seven behind a two loss USC team. My final top 10 is a little different since I accounted for the Rose Bowl, but I named Navy my national champion. I had Stanford at number two and Alabama at number three, but I also said you could make a case for Stanford and Alabama to be tied at number two since they tied in the Rose Bowl. I also had Brown a little higher on my poll than the Dickinson poll did. Also, I put Carnegie Tech in my top 10 which the Dickinson poll did not. There are some differences between these two polls, but again, the Dickinson poll did their poll a few weeks after the 1927 season, and I did my poll 95 years later. But for this year, I'll be doing my rankings a little bit different than I did it in my 1924 and 1926 year. And I'm only going to be doing a poll at the end of the October games and at the end of the season. And if I did more rankings this season, this video would be even longer to go over. So without waiting any longer, let's get started because all the craziness of this season would come about around uh, halfway through October. And speaking of that, the start of the season was in September, but at the end of September. But there weren't any really big games. No big teams were playing against one another like other seasons. So I'm just going to move on into October, as October 1st would have one pretty interesting game, as St. Mary's would travel to Stanford. I talked about Stanford a lot in my 1926 video, but coming into 1927, they were looking a little different, as a lot of their all-American picks graduated, but they still had. Pop Warner who was coaching and was able to continue their winning ways into the 1927 season as they were already 2-0. And if you don't know about St. Mary's football, I did a whole discontinued video about them. You can check them out in the description below. But this team was a pretty fun team as they had a fun coach in Slip Madigan. And he also had a really good player in Larry Betancourt as they were able to stop Stanford the entire game. And St. Mary's was able to score a huge upset, winning 16 to nothing. This was the first big win for a very young St. Mary's program and a huge hit on Stanford's ego, but don't worry, Stanford would be fine at the end of the season, and I'll get to that shortly. But the season would really start to heat up on the weekend of October 8th. A huge game was happening on the East Coast as Georgia would travel to Yale. Georgia had traveled to Yale in each of the previous four seasons, and each time they came up with a loss and were outscored by a combined 101-13. to Last season for Yale was a bad one, as they didn't have a winning season, but they still broke even at 4-4, four and four. and Georgia were only able to do slightly better as they were 5-4. and four. But Georgia was coming into the season with a lot to play for, as for one thing, their coach George Cecil Woodruff would be stepping down at the end of the season. Next up, they would have to prove a lot of people wrong. That was because more than half of their starters from the previous season wouldn't be coming back. But fortunately, they would be bringing back two really good ends in Chick Sheaver and big six foot three end Tom Nash, who, yes, was pretty big by 1927 standards. Yale, meanwhile, were led by an amazing line that would have two All-Americans, and they were led on offense by halfback Bruce Caldwell who played last season at Yale, as well as played at Brown. Coldwell would score a few times in Yale's first game, but in this game, Georgia was holding him out of the end zone. And fumbles would be the thing that would win Georgia this game as a Yale fumble at its own nine-yard line, set up an early Georgia touchdown, and then Georgia would score again to take the 14-10 lead. Neither team would be able to score, and the closest a team would get would be late in the game, as Caldwell would fumble just as he was about to cross the goal line, and Georgia held on to win. The upset gained them not only press in the South, but all over the country and after this game, George's dream and wonder nickname stuck with them throughout the rest of the season. Okay, October 8th was definitely turning up the heat on this season, but October 15th would be turning a blaze to this season because there would be two very important games. First off would be a game happening out west as USC and Stanford would have a huge early season matchup. Stanford already had a loss, and USC were coming into this game 3-0. USC were led at coach this season by Howard Jones, and he had a great all-around athlete at quarterback in Morley Druey. Both the coach and the quarterback had not beaten Stanford since they had come to USC, and this was looking like maybe they would break through, as it was a close affair all game. But in the end, USC couldn't upset Stanford in Palo Alto, but Stanford couldn't win either and this game ended in a 13-13 tie. The tie would make the PCC Championship even muddier at the end of the season, and once again, USC missed out on their chance to beat their rival. The next big game was happening about 3,000 miles east as Notre Dame traveled to Baltimore for their yearly game versus Navy. Navy were coming into this game with a 12-game unbeaten streak after their unbeaten 1926 season, and they were also my defending national champion, and they were also coming into this game 2-0 after winning them pretty easily to start this season. And if you have watched my previous two videos, then you know that Navy, like Army, had the advantage of getting athletes easily, and due to that, they could always reload, and they would need to do that after losing some linemen from their great 1926 team. Notre Dame, meanwhile, were also 2-0, but led by Rockney and their captain, as well as future head coach, John Clipper Smith. The game would have Navy score first, but Notre Dame blocked the kick, and then took over the rest of the game as they bombarded Navy's defense to score three times, all in the second half, and win 19-6. As we get closer to my first ranking of this season, we are in the weekend of October 22nd, and this weekend's biggest game was a Northeastern matchup between Army and Yale. Since I mentioned Yale already, let's get a little bit into Army. They were led on their line by tackle Bud Sprague who I mentioned in my 1926 episode, and their offense was led by a talented runner in Red Cagle. He was a recent transfer from southwestern Louisiana who had played from 1922 to 1925, and he had scored 235 points during those four years. He would play in a few games in the 1926 season, but in the 1927 season, his legend would really grow. Unfortunately, it would take a hit in this game, as 78,000 fans would show up to the Yale Bowl to see Yale's best player Bruce Caldwell make up for the Georgia loss and pass for a touchdown instead of running it to give Yale the lead. Yale would then manage to hold off Army and Red Cagle the rest of the game to win 10-6 and get a big win after suffering a humiliating loss the previous week. But before I get to the next week and instead of covering another game, I'm going to be covering another team that was doing quite well at this point and would show up in my mid-season poll coming up. Texas A&M was that team. They were in the classic Southwest Conference and yearly battled with SMU and TCU for the title. A&M had won the conference in 1925, but would have a down year of only five wins in 1926. Coming into this season, they managed to bring back most of their line, as well as their very talented quarterback, Joel Hunt. Hunt had played about 20 games already and was showing off his abilities in the 1927 season as he had scored nine touchdowns in the first four games, including scoring three times Versus an unbeaten Arkansas team on October 15th. In the October 22nd game, A&M would play their toughest opponent in TCU. TCU were 3-0-1 coming into this game, and this game would be a rough and tough affair. As TCU would hold off Texas A&M, and A&M would do the same, resulting in a scoreless tie. The last weekend of October would have a big game in the Midwest and have two teams that I haven't talked about yet, as Michigan would travel to Illinois to play the Illini. Michigan were 4-0 at this point, and they were without fielding Yost on the sideline, as he left coaching for the second and final time after the 1926 season. But once again, he's in the team photo and he was probably hanging around the sidelines most of the next two seasons because the new coach this year was Tad Weeman and they wouldn't get along. But that's a story for another video. Anyway, Tad Wieman played at Michigan in the late teens and was an assistant at Michigan. Wieman would do a good job coaching the team, that was without Benny Friedman, but they still had Bernie Oosterbahn, and Michigan were 4-0 with four shutouts. Illinois, meanwhile, were coached by their longtime head coach Robert Zupke, who wouldn't have Red Grange this year, but he would have his younger brother Garland and a great line led by two All-Americans. Illinois also started the season unbeaten, but they were 4-0-1 after a heartbreaking tie to Iowa State midway through October. That tie game would make Michigan the slight favorite, but Illinois would wipe them out as Illinois shut out Michigan 14 to nothing to score a huge Big Ten win. Another big game that was happening this weekend was a first-time game. Haven't talked about this one before. Notre Dame and Georgia Tech. This was a big game for both teams, as both teams were undefeated and Georgia Tech were having their best season yet, as they were 4-0 with three shutouts, plus they gave Alabama their first loss in over two years just weeks before this. Georgia Tech were coached by William Alexander who took over in 1920, after John Heisman, and continued the winning tradition that Heisman started. This team would have a really good line that were quite underweight, as they weighed in at under 200 pounds, which was smaller than most during this time and would be considered very small if they were playing now, but they would manage to hold teams down to only one touchdown throughout their first four games. The Georgia Tech offense, meanwhile, were led by Stumpy Thomason, who would score in three out of their first four games, too. And like I mentioned, Notre Dame were undefeated as they were 4 now, and they had beaten Navy, Indiana, and Detroit. The game would start slow, as Notre Dame had a ton of reserves play in the first quarter, and Georgia Tech couldn't break through for a touchdown. But Notre Dame would be the one to break through and score first, and once most of their starters came in, they broke this game open with two more touchdowns in the third quarter. Georgia Tech's offense would score in the final quarter, but it wasn't enough to lead to a comeback, as Notre Dame won very easily 26-7. And this game would be very important to my rankings, not only at the end of the season, but in my rankings right now, because my number one team going into November is going to be Notre Dame. They are 5-0. Again, they do have those big wins over Georgia Tech and Navy. Coming in at number two is going to be Georgia, who are 5-0. They have four shutouts. They beat Yale. Illinois right behind them at 4-0-1. I mentioned them a little bit already. USC is going to be number four. Pittsburgh. I haven't mentioned them yet. I will be mentioning them a little bit more as they get throughout the rest of the season. But they are 6-0 right now with five shutouts. Yale is behind them as they are my first team with a loss in the rankings. Michigan right behind them at 4-1. And they are ahead of Texas A&M, who are unbeaten. Army is going to be number nine. And Minnesota is going to round out the top 10. And you see a couple of other top 20 teams there. Stanford is still a top. 20 team even though they have a loss. Princeton is there you'll be hearing a little bit about them and Navy still a top 20 team. But let's get into November as I have to head back to the Midwest for a big game that Notre Dame would be in as they would play 4-0-1 Minnesota. Notre Dame and Minnesota had a common opponent in Indiana who Notre Dame had beat by two scores while Minnesota tied them. So due to that, it was looking like Notre Dame should have the advantage in this game. But Minnesota would have a really good team, with a good running game, led by Herb Josting. And they had a new and quite unknown player... In Bronco, Nagurski, running pretty much the rest of their team. Nagurski had come to campus in 1927 with quite the legendary story. The story goes that Nagurski was discovered and signed by the University of Minnesota head coach Clarence Spears, who drove to International Falls, Minnesota, to meet another player. And on the outside of town, he watched Nagurski plowing a field without any assistance. After Spears asked the young Bronco for directions, Bronco Nagurski apparently lifted the plow and used it to point. Yeah, it's quite the crazy story, because once Clarence Spears saw Bronco Nagurski's insane strength, he would sign him on the spot and bring him to campus. Later, Coach Spears said that the story was fake, but after the first Minnesota practice, many thought it was real. That was because Bronco Nagurski broke through three linemen in the first practice. And after sports writers saw that, the legend would only grow bigger. Bronco would play tackle on both offense and defense, and also run the ball occasionally. And in this game, Notre Dame's offense couldn't do much, but managed to score a touchdown. After that, Minnesota tried, but couldn't tie it up until late fumbles set up a touchdown, and fortunately they made the extra point to get the 7-7 tie. But up next this week was the battle for Pennsylvania as undefeated Pitt would play undefeated Washington in Jefferson. Now, if you haven't heard my past two episodes of How the Year Was Won, about 1924 and 1926, then you really should, because I mentioned Washington and Jefferson quite a bit, as they always finished with good records, and they were always getting better. This year was their best year of the 1920s, as they were already 6-0 and with four shutouts and beat another top Pennsylvania team in Lafayette, but their schedule otherwise wasn't so great. Pitt, meanwhile, were a top five team in my midseason poll. Even though their schedule wasn't the best, they were smashing teams, as they had five shutouts and won their six combined games by a score of 228-7. to To go along with that, this rivalry had been going on since 1890, with Washington and Jefferson leading the series early, but going into this year, it was deadlocked. Both teams would have a good line and an offensive star, as Washington and Jefferson had Bill Amos and Pitt had Gibby Welsh. And this game was looking like Washington and Jefferson could lead this series again, as Pitt were coming into the game hurt and were trying to play the reserves as much as possible so they can rest them up for big matchups versus Nebraska and Penn State. Another setback for Pitt besides injuries was that the rain made the field impossible at Ford's field to do anything. That would result in no one getting close to the goal line, But Pitt did somehow try three field goals. None of them went in, though. So this game ended in a scoreless tie. But before I get to next week, I have to head down south to Texas A&M, who I have mentioned before a little bit, but I'm going to mention a lot right now because they would have to play two games across six days against southwest conference opponents first they played smu who were unbeaten last season and the southwest conference champions but in this year smu were coming into this game with a loss as they fell to a smaller but an undefeated school in centenary college in october but would still have a chance to win the southwest conference title because that loss was in an out-of-conference game fortunately for a m they had total domination as Joel Hunt would run and throw for at least two touchdowns in this game as A&M steamrolled SMU 39-13. Six days later, Texas A&M would have to turn it around and play Rice in Houston. And Rice wasn't that good this year as they were 1-6-1, but they knew how to stop Texas A&M, and that was to stop their quarterback Joel Hunt. They did that most of the way as Texas A&M could only get 13 points and Rice could get nothing, meaning that Texas A&M got their second win in six days and were one win away from an unbeaten season. And let's go to the next day of November 12th. And I'm going to start with a game this week, which was one of my biggest and probably top five important games of the season as Army would face Notre Dame in Yankee Stadium. If you remember, Army already had a loss to Yale a few weeks ago, but that only made them better, as they would win their next two games by shutout, Notre Dame, meanwhile, had suffered their first setback the previous week with a tie, but were still unbeaten at 5-0-1 and were atop my rankings. And if they could win this game, they would stay atop my rankings even with the tie. Unfortunately, this game would not go Notre Dame's way at all, as Army's defense shut out Notre Dame's offense and Army's running back Red Cagle would do the rest as he had a 49-yard touchdown to start, and then he put up another touchdown on Notre Dame, and then he put up another touchdown on Notre Dame later on in the game to seal an 18 to nothing win. Now I'm going to head out west. Stanford would continue their weird season with an out-of-conference game versus Santa Clara. This is another team I went over in a previous discontinued episode. I will put the link below as well as in the upper right-hand corner. But Santa Clara were a mediocre, smaller Western school, as they were 2, 3, and 1. And the previous four times that Stanford and Santa Clara played, Santa Clara couldn't get closer than two touchdowns. This year, though, Stanford would start slow, as Santa Clara would score first, before Stanford would tie it up before halftime. After half, though, Santa Clara and the weather would stall Stanford, and Santa Clara would score in the fourth quarter to win the game 13-6. This was a huge and very strange upset, and it would dump Stanford down to 6-2-1, and one. but both of those losses were out of conference, which is something of note for later. And staying in the PCC as I get to the weekend of November 19th as USC would defeat Washington State 27 to nothing, while Stanford would beat Visiting California 13-6 to, to close out their season 8-2-1. And, and that is significant because even though USC were at 8-1-1 and, and had a better overall record, Stanford's two losses had been outside the conference. And they tied USC. In Pacific Coast Conference play, Stanford and USC both finished 4-0-1. Which means they were both conference champions and could have been picked for the Rose Bowl. But the Rose Bowl usually only picks one team from the West Coast. So which team were they going to pick? Well, I'll get to that in just a minute because it's a little controversial. But while the Pacific Coast Conference were figuring out who was going to win their conference, there would be some big games happening in the Big Ten, as Illinois would close out their season with a 13-0 win over Ohio State to be 7-0-1 and 5-0 in the Big Ten. Meanwhile, Michigan and Minnesota could face off in what could give Minnesota an unbeaten record in the Big Ten. Minnesota had two ties already and one in the Big Ten as they tied Indiana, so technically they could win a share of the conference title, even though they had played only four Big Ten games to Illinois' five. But anyway, the game would be a struggle as Michigan took the lead in the first quarter, but then Minnesota would come from behind with 13 points in the second half, and Minnesota would hold on with Bronco Nagurski helping them out, as Minnesota would win 13-7 and give Minnesota their first victory over Michigan since 1919. Before I head to Thanksgiving in the last weekend of November, I have to go back east to check in with Yale. Yale at this point were 5-1-1, and and they were about to play two pretty tough and well-known teams. First up was Princeton. Princeton at this point were 6-0. They had just beaten Ohio State. This was a really good team. And just to make things a little spicier before the game, Princeton would actually challenge the eligibility of Yale's best player, Bruce Caldwell. That was because Bruce Caldwell had played as a freshman at Brown a couple of years ago, meaning that his eligibility this season was pretty much over. Princeton would challenge his eligibility and it was accepted by Yale, so Yale would sit Bruce Caldwell out for this game and for their final game against Harvard. And remember, this team was at the top of my polls right now, so they kind of needed to win these last two games. Well, in the first game versus Princeton, they were playing at home in the Yale Bowl. And over 80,000 people would show up to see Yale have a tough fight, but they ended up pulling through and beating Princeton 14-6 to to ruin Princeton's undefeated season after they challenged for their best player to be out of this game. Yale's final game was going to be November 19th, and it would be their first road game. Yes, their first game on the road. They played in the Yale Bowl throughout the entire season, and they would be going to Boston to play Harvard. Now, Harvard before this game were actually okay with Bruce Caldwell playing, but since Yale and Harvard and pretty much all the Ivy League teams were very gentlemanly and had a gentleman's agreement on things, they said no, they were still not going to play him. And they didn't really need him in this game because they thrashed Harvard throughout the entire game, and would shut them out 13-0 to to finish their season 7-1. So now Yale, with some pretty good wins on their record like over Princeton and over Army, would have to wait a couple of weeks to see how this season would unfold. And remember these two games because they're important for my final poll coming up and now we are at Thanksgiving 1927 and there would be a lot of rivalry games today I'm going to quickly mention a few as Pittsburgh would beat their in-state rival Penn State 30 to nothing and would finish their season unbeaten they had outscored their opponents 283 to 20 they had seven shutouts out of nine games and they would be the choice that the Rose Bowl committee would make as their eastern squad the western squad that would be represented in this game would be a little controversial But I can't get to it yet because we're not done with the season just yet. Texas A&M, meanwhile, would win their conference after a dominant 28-7 win over Texas. A little to the east of the Southwest Conference, undefeated Georgia would travel to play Alabama in Alabama's first game at Legion Field. Alabama were having a down year of sorts as they had suffered their second defeat on November 12th as they were upset by Florida. But they could score a big win here and ruin Georgia's season on their new field. Unfortunately, that wouldn't happen as Tom Nash for Georgia scored first and then he got a second touchdown later to give Georgia a 20-0 lead. Bama would eventually score in the fourth quarter, so they wouldn't get shut out on their new home field, but they would still lose the game 20-7. Georgia would have one more game, which I'll cover in just a moment, because it's a big game. But yeah, this season is not done, even though we are now after Thanksgiving. We're in the weekend of November 26, as Notre Dame and USC would meet for their new yearly matchup, And in front of 115,000 people, yes, that was the number that was given, would show up to Soldier Field in Chicago to watch this huge game. Notre Dame were 6-1-1 and looking for a big win to end their season. USC, meanwhile, were unbeaten as they were 7-0-1, remember? They were at the top of the PCC standings, but they wouldn't be going to the Rose Bowl, so this was kind of a bowl game of sorts, and it would also be a big show-off game to some sports writers if they could win it. The game would be a back-and-forth affair, with USC scoring but missing the extra point which would be the reason why they lost, as Notre Dame scored and made the extra point to hold on and win 7-6. to six. And I mentioned in the 1926 season, the reason why USC wasn't undefeated was because of extra points, and it would happen again this season. USC would end their season on December 3rd, beating Washington in L.A. 33-13. USC and Stanford, again, were both 4-0-1, and it would put the Rose Bowl in a little bit of a pickle since they only chose one Western team to be represented in this game. And since both teams were 4-0-1 in the conference and both tied each other when they played... The Rose Bowl would pick Stanford as their Western representative. And the main reason that I can find is that the Rose Bowl wanted to give Stanford another shot at winning this game since they tied Alabama the previous year. But whatever the reason was, it really pissed off USC. And pissed USC off enough that they didn't even want to go to the Rose Bowl game for the next couple of years. But now we're going to head to the polo grounds as Army would play Navy. Army were 8 and 1 right now and Navy were 6 and 2 and this was a huge annual rivalry game all the sports writers would show up Tons of people would show up. It was completely sold out. And Army, after losing to Yale a month before this, have been unstoppable, as they won their next four games after that loss by shutout. So yeah, they haven't given up any points in over a month. Navy, meanwhile, were having a difficult season, as they suffered another loss to Michigan to knock them out of national title contention two weeks before this game. This game was more for bragging rights than anything else. And navy looked like they might score the big win as they took a nine to nothing lead meaning that they were the first team to score on army in over a month but in the second half army would completely take over and score twice to lead 14 to 9 and hold on to win and end their season nine and one there is still one more game left and it's one of the most controversial games ever and it's still talked about to this day as Georgia would travel to Atlanta for what would be the Southern Conference title game. As both teams were undefeated in the conference, and Georgia were the only unbeaten team left in the entire country, they had beaten Yale. All they had to do was win this game, and they would be the national champion. The game would happen only a few hours after a bad rainstorm had flooded the field, but some Georgia players and fans would think Georgia Tech watered the field down some more to stop the Bulldogs' running game even more in this game. Along with the field being muddy, Georgia Tech had apparently come up with the plan— This plan was that after Georgia Tech lost to Notre Dame, Coach Alexander split his team into two squads and played mostly his reserves for the four weeks after that Notre Dame loss. The regular starters would instead conserve their bodies and practice most of that time solely for Georgia. And this sneaky plan would work as Georgia Tech stopped Georgia from getting near scoring position. And one of Georgia Tech's best players, Stumpy Thomason, would intercept the pass at the goal line and they would score again. And Georgia Tech would win the game 12 to nothing in a shocking upset. The win would give Georgia Tech the Southern Conference Championship since they didn't have any losses and their only detriment was a tie to Vanderbilt earlier in the year. Georgia would end their season 9-1 and their Dream and Wonder season would end in a crushing defeat. So now we are at the end of the regular season and that was when the final Dickinson poll would come out and they would name this year the national champion as illinois and look at how close it was they only won it by point zero eight over pittsburgh and then minnesota were within a point and so was notre dame so that is how close the tabulation was for this year and it shows how hard it was to find a national champion yale is at number five they were a point and a half behind illinois Army is there at number six. Again, another team that you could also name as your national champion. Michigan would finish at seven with their two losses. Georgia and USC would round out the top ten ahead of undefeated Texas A&M. So that shows just how crazy this year was. And there are still two more games left. So I'm not going to do my final poll yet. Instead, I'll tell you about these two final games. The first one real quick was a rematch of a game that happened in 1924 between Penn and Cal. Both of these teams this year were not coming in as national championship teams. Even though Cal was in my midseason poll, they would lose three of their final four games to finish 6-3. and three, And Penn were also coming in this game 6-3. and three. California would end up winning the rematch, so they would finish 7-3. and three. And you might see one of these teams in my final poll at the end of the regular season. But the final game was the Rolls Bowl, and it would be another exciting matchup, pitting unbeaten Pitt versus two-loss PCC champion, well, co-champion, Stanford. And the game would be a weird one, as both would score, but they would come off of Stanford fumbles. Yeah, you heard me right. But just because they both came from Stanford, that doesn't mean they lost. The first score came from Pitt as they scored off of a Frank Wilton fumble, which he coughed up inside of scoring position. Pitt would then drive 80 yards for the touchdown, but miss the extra point to lead 6 to nothing. Later in the same quarter, Frank Wilton would make up for his mistake when his teammate Spud Lewis fumbled a yard from the goal line and Wilton, being in the right place at the right time, picked up the ball and ran in for a touchdown. And fortunately for Stanford, they wouldn't get a tie as they would make the extra points and hold on to beat unbeaten Pitt. And that would really make my final poll tough to do. But here you go. Here is my final poll. I am going to name Yale... As my national champion, they were 7-1. and one. They beat Army, who are a top-five team. They also beat Princeton, who are very good. They will finish in my top 20. And they beat Dartmouth. They beat both of those teams without their best player. And Yale's only loss was because of a fumble just as they were crossing the goal line to win the game. So that's why I can't really put them any lower than that because my number two team is going to be Army, who lost to Yale. But Army's best win would be over Notre Dame, a top five team. They beat them by a dominant shutout. They also beat Navy. But again, they lost to Yale by four points. After leading through most of the game, number three is going to be Notre Dame. They were 7-1-1. Their only loss was to Army, but that was by shutout, so it looks really bad. That's why i got to put them at number three. They do, however, have a lot of good wins as they beat USC. They also beat Georgia Tech, and they tied Minnesota, so schedule alone is the reason why they are ranked higher than other teams, and especially other unbeaten teams, because Texas A&M is going to finish at number four, and they really didn't have the best schedule, but it was fortunate that their division, the southwestern conference was pretty good this year because arkansas was eight and one smu was seven and two and texas was six two and one so they do have those three good wins and their only tie was to tcu who you will see finishes in my top 25 poll USC is going to round out my top five as they are 8-1-1. One, and one. Their only loss was by one point to Notre Dame. Otherwise, they beat Washington, Santa Clara. And remember, Santa Clara beat Stanford. So they were pretty much the best team in the PCC in my mind. And they should have gone to the Rose Bowl. Minnesota is going to finish at 6-0-2. They are only ahead of Illinois because they have a better schedule as they tied Notre Dame. Number seven is going to be Georgia Tech. Their best win is obviously over Georgia. Plus, they did tie Vanderbilt, who's going to finish in the top 25, and their only loss was to Notre Dame, but it was a pretty bad loss. I can't put Georgia ahead of Georgia Tech, even though Georgia smashed a lot of teams, and they also have a great win over my national championship team in Yale. But they still would lose to Georgia Tech and not win their own conference. So I got to put them behind Georgia Tech. However, I will put Georgia ahead of Illinois, who's going to be at number nine. And their best win was over Michigan. Minnesota also beat Michigan. But otherwise, Illinois doesn't have a good schedule. And number 10 is going to be SMU. And they are an interesting team because their only two losses are on the road to unbeaten teams. As they lost to Centenary College, a very small school It's going to finish in my top 25 and they also lost to Texas A&M but SMU have some pretty good wins as they beat Missouri they also beat Texas and TCU so I'm going to put them in the top 10 Stanford's going to finish in my top 25 you also see Setonary College they're in there because they were 11 and 0 that year they beat SMU and TCU but otherwise their schedule were against a lot of very smaller teams so I can't put them any higher than in the top 25. So there you go. This was a very tough year to name the national champion. If you think you have a better reason for who should be the national champion, please comment below. I'm not going to tell you you're wrong because it was really tough for me to name the national champion between Yale, Army, Notre Dame. I could have also named Texas A&M my national champion. So please put it in the comments below. Also, thank you so much for hanging out with me on this very long journey. Please subscribe to the channel below. Ring the bell bell check out my social media my podcast and my patreon you can help out the channel there it's all in the description below have a fantastic rest of your day